Restoration. Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the Restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Peinecker, and we're doing a special after show, after show 2.0 for the series finale. Now, before we get started, we're going to have Hannah address what happened. Um, I just want to remind everybody the merch store is open. Uh, MormonBookReviews.com. You can buy hats. You can buy vinyl seat covers. You can buy coffee cups. And Rebecca, thank you for buying that. I appreciate it. And then, uh, but of course, uh, no episode with Hannah Sarek cannot go without me downing the uh, Make Kimura, uh, Kimura Great Again hat. Uh, welcome, uh, Hannah. I just, I don't want to make this a safe space for you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to see the hat again. Uh, it brings back so many feelings. Um, yes, that's right. So I, uh, you know, and again, those of you who are supporting the channel on PayPal and, and on, on Patreon, I want to thank you so much. By the way, I did lose a Patreon the other day and I, I messaged them and I haven't heard back from you, but if you would like to tell me why I did message to ask, you know, if there's something I could do to improve the channel or help uh, access for the Patreon, I just want to put that out there. I feel bad. I lost a Patreon and I want you back. So either way, I love you either way. Maybe you just, your credit card got expired and you just forgot to renew. I don't know. Either way. Hannah, so basically we posted a uh, after show episode and about an hour, an hour and a half after it uh, was posted, uh, you contacted me and you requested that I, um, uh, that I pull the episode. And of course, you're my friend and you gave me some reasons why, and we've talked about it as well, uh, why you felt it. And I felt, okay, no, you're my friend. I respect you so much. And you agreed to do a reshoot. So I really appreciate you doing this. I just want you, I just want to hand over the floor to you to kind of just address what happened. Sure. Um, so being totally transparent, the last few weeks have been uh, kind of a, a firestorm for me in several ways. Um, as I have become more liberal, I've, I've faced a lot of backlash, um, you know, not only from people who are more conservative for me, but people who uh, were more liberal than me when I first started talking about uh, Latter-day Saint faith and Mormonism online. Um, so that backlash has definitely weighed on me a lot. And I think during the episode, uh, my attempts to have a positive discussion with a non-Mormon and a post-Mormon about hard topics in the church um, was really overshadowed by my emotional anger. And there were several times where I felt like I was too snarky, where I felt like I was uh, not sensitive, um, where I felt like I was too emotional to uh, express my my thoughts. And that emotion, of course, is real, right? I I am genuinely very, very upset about Mount Meadows Massacre and other, and blood atonement and that it even happened. And it's hard for me to talk about those things. At the same time, I want to be able to have the conversation without uh, also then being angry about these other things that were going on in my life and having that pure through the episode. Um, so I took some time last night to get a little bit more collected, to diffuse um, a little bit from being upset. And if you want to know more about what happened, I made a long Facebook post about it. And uh, it's a public Facebook post, you can look at it. Um, but I want to make sure that in my attempts to uh, have, you know, more nuanced perspectives to be, uh, to try to be more loving, to be more kind and inclusive, that I don't end up being angry. And I thought that my anger last night um, while recording, well, yesterday morning while recording this episode uh, led me to just be unclear in what I was saying. Okay, well, Hannah, I do, do appreciate you uh, discussing that. And uh, Rebecca, did you have any uh, follow-up question or anything regarding this or anything you wanted to say? 
No, I mean, I enjoyed the discussion yesterday morning just immensely. And I thought it was wonderful. I thought it, it was very well said, everything that you said. But I also, of course, respect um, you in hindsight, realizing that you didn't perhaps portray how you felt or what you meant in your best way that you're comfortable with. So I say 2.0, let's do it again. Uh, we could talk for hours about this topic, right? So That's let's right. do it. That's right. So Hannah, um, I just wanted to say one of the things before we actually get in delve into the episode is uh, you would also, uh, when we were at the Mormon History Association, I, I, I was walking down the hallway and I almost <laughs> tripped over you because you're, you're on the floor and you were writing an article for the Deseret News, I think it was a Friday, and uh, the article was about uh, Brenda Lafferty's story. So maybe just talk a little bit about that article and I'm going to leave that in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. So during this discussion on Under the Banner of Heaven, right, so I got the pre-screenings um, a couple months before the episodes actually aired. And I, I had been thinking about this the show since last year when it was announced. I think it was announced in June, 2021. Um, again, I, I had heard that there would be a movie at one point, right? Cause that was when the rights were sold. Um, but it really came to the forefront of my mind for the last year. And it, it also coincided with what I was experiencing which was um, developing a more nuanced faith in a, in a space that is very conservative, right? Because Latter-day Saint spaces are very, very conservative. So that left me in this really introspective space about what it meant to be a Latter-day Saint. What did that mean to me? What does that mean for me parsing out these really hard issues? Like how do I, how do I approach these things that are so close to my faith, that are so close to my church? And when I started thinking about this, I, I reread the book. And while rereading the book, and watching the um, early episodes, I was really struck by Brenda. I was struck by Brenda. I, I've told the story in a Facebook post, but I'll tell it now, um, just because I think it's really meaningful. There's a scene in one of the, I think it's the first or the second episode. I, I can't remember, it's been a while. Um, the first or the second episode where she's just sitting with the other ladies drinking lemonade while the men are out there doing the work, right? And then she runs forward and she starts helping them. And I've had moments like that in my life, which have been just really formative for me. Um, there have been many times in my life where, um, for example, uh, the specific experience was I was at a Relief Society Elders Quorum activity. And we were supposed to be uh, basically mulching this area to make a hammock. Um, and, you know, everyone in the Relief Society was supposed to be inside making lunch. Well, the elders quorum was outside mulching this area for the hammock. And I thought to myself, no, I want to be mulching that area for the hammock. And I went out and I did that. And I, at the time felt like, uh, and I know this sounds a little silly, but it felt like a, a small way for me to kind of take that space because I, I have struggled a lot with uh, very uh, strict ideas of, of gender roles. Um, and that has been, really difficult for me personally. So then watching Brenda do that for me was a really emotional experience. And at the time I thought to myself, okay, so Under the Banner of Heaven tells the story of her, her murder and Erica Lane's murder. And I think that that's a story that should be told because we, we need to know what happened. We need to, to think about it and think about how it impacts us today. But I also wanted to know her life because I thought that her life must have been 
so remarkable. And I went to the internet. I see this in the article. I went to the internet, started looking and looking and looking, and I could not find a single thing just written about her. Not even really, you know, in, in places that I, I would have expect, expected to. Um, the closest I found was one Medium article that mentioned some details about her life, but I just wanted to know what was her favorite food? Like, what was her favorite book? What did she like to do? So I got in contact with her sisters, uh, first Sharon and then Joanna, and I just did a deep dive. I went through a ton of social media uh, posts to find uh, other people who knew her and to read what they had to say and to hear what they had to say about who she was. And then I decided that my contribution, besides my Facebook posts, which um, have been about, I made one post about Mount Meadows Massacre, uh, one post about Blood Atonement, um, and those posts were specifically because I, I understand that those are hard topics in the church, and I wanted to explain how, uh, well, well, first off, why teaching blood atonement is wrong, and why Mount Meadows Massacre was wrong, but also um, how to, to grapple with them, and some things that you can do to, to move forward. So that was my, those were my Facebook posts, but the, the one thing that I wanted to write about in Under the Banner of Heaven was Brenda, um, just because I thought, you know, there's a, <laughs> there, there's a lot of voices who are talking about representation of uh, Mormons in Under the Banner of Heaven, but I, I felt like for me, um, I felt very called to do it. It was honestly a very spiritual experience for me. I felt very called to write about Brenda's life because of just how much resonance I had with her and how, how disappointed I was that I couldn't find anything about her. Well, I'm so glad you did that. And I've been in touch with Brenda's uh, sister and I'd, down the road, she's going to come on. She's She's been kind of swamped lately. And I thought, you know, I'd love, what I'd love to do is have Brenda's sister come on and give like a PowerPoint, a share screen, pictures, talking about her sister, and kind of like have a visual documentation of Brenda's story, which I hope to do soon. So Rebecca, you have anything you want to add? Yes. After learning about the article that you'd written in our previous discussion yesterday morning, I read it last night. That was my bedtime story. And it was amazing. And thank you so much for doing that, because I think Steve and I both mentioned in our very first after show, where's Brenda? You know, it really is all about the other characters. We know all about Dan and Ron in the media. We know what their favorite food is. We don't know anything about Brenda. And I also felt... Um, just sort of a kinship to her too. She's five years old. I'm five years younger than she is. You know, I was a young woman raised in the eighties in that environment. And I experienced many moments um, at church and, and just culturally where, you know, the women are inside making the food, the men are outside working. And so that scene also resonated with me. Um, I, I, like I said, I've had many experiences like that. So I definitely thought she was a bright light, a spark, a progressive, and those are the kind of people that unfortunately all too often are shut down in many different ways. So thank you for writing that article. I would encourage everyone, everybody to take a look at that in the Desert News. It's, it was really good. Yeah, thank here, you. here. So one of the things that I wanted to uh, mention was, you know, our last episode, and by the way, folks, we had the Mormon History Association. That's why we're a little delayed in doing this wrap up. But I thought I, we owe this to the audience because, uh, you know, people have been watching my this this channel and so i felt like it's been a couple of weeks but i know people are going to watch it and one of the things that was most informative was Lindsay, having Lindsay hansen park on because i think rebecca and i after we had that conversation with Lindsay, we had a better understanding of what was the thought process in the, in producing this and this is the thing this really is dustin lance black story in one sense 
And Detective Pyrie is a fictional character, but Andrew Garfield made it, uh, talked about how he interacted with a cop in Utah who had a, lost his faith. So in one sense, it is based on a real person. Um, and so it was just a, it was a device of telling uh, the story about losing faith. And, and, and again, it's, it's not this events based on the, uh, the, uh, the banner of heaven or inspired by. So it's recognized as there's, there's, it's a fictionalized account, but is, it's grounded in history. And I just wanted maybe we talk a little bit about um, the importance. This is the other thing about what Lindsay had said was, and because Rebecca, we had talked about how the first two episodes were kind of like, Ugh. and then we had found out that Lindsay kind of wasn't involved on the series early on. And so I think we see Lindsay's fingerprints on the show and it seems to get better the more input that Lindsay is putting into the program. Would you agree with that? I definitely agree with that. I mean, prior to maybe episodes four, five, six, seven, I would not have recommended this to anybody to watch. I mean, we were a little snarky <laughs> about our description of the first two episodes. We felt they were overplayed, heavy handed, lifetime movie, but you're right, talking to Lindsay and understanding the perspective that she brought, understanding what Dustin Lance Black was trying to do. By the time we got to those last two episodes, I found them incredibly powerful, incredibly impactful, incredibly emotional. And I finally understood, I think the vision of the entire thing, even if though it was a little difficult, had a rough start, I'll say, right? But the landing I think was perfect. So that, those are kind of my thoughts on the, the entire series overall. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about faith politics. I think now's a good time to talk about faith politics. Um, and when I say faith politics, I think that there's this, um, and I've participated in this, um, so I'm not exempt from it. Um, there's this desire that, you know, Latter-day Saints stick to themselves, ex-Mormons stick to themselves, and there's not um, a whole lot of dialogue in between. And there's also a lot of villainization that goes on where, um, a lot of the time an ex-Mormon speaking is characterized as anti-Mormon um, and things are just so so dealt with so uh, in such a polarizing way, right? And one of the things that I saw happen with Under the Banner of Heaven was this just play out in a very extreme way. And honestly, it was it was really difficult for, for me to watch because like anyone, I have ex-Mormon friends and family. Um, and it's hard for me to, um, sorry, I, what, I have ex-Mormon friends. I don't have ex-Mormon family. I just slip of the tongue. Yeah. Um, I have ex-Mormon friends who I have watched go through their faith crises and I have seen them still engage with Mormonism in, in, in various ways. And they have Mormon, Mormon friends and they have Mormon family. I know people that are in mixed faith marriages. And for, for me personally, um, listening to their perspectives on Under the Barrier of Heaven was really important and, and trying to, to make that space for them too. And I, I also found that they made space for me too. Um, and we were able to find a lot more confluence when the, the heat was turned down. So um, when we're talking about Lindsay Hanson Park and Dustin Lance Black, um, definitely I, I think that you can critique the show, but not be very... Uh, angry towards okay. them so just real quick hannah i yeah. uh, you know kimberly watson smith you know she messaged me and i, I just want to read what she had said and then you can address i think this would be the perfect opportunity to do so um so actually as we were filming yesterday 
I got this from her. Um, she, she posted it in my private group. I would like to know how Hannah Syriac justifies her support for Under the Banner of Heaven as that show was written and produced by anti-Mormons who mock our faith. I am disappointed that she aligns with those who attack our faith. That's not responsible scholarship. I'd like you to talk about that. Sure. So, um, I mean, as a technical point, right, this is not peer reviewed. My writing is edited, but it's not peer reviewed. So it, it's a little bit tricky for me to hear that's not responsible scholarship when what I'm doing is, is not scholarship in the first place. And to the point of allying myself with anti-Mormons, right? I'm friends with people that other people call anti-Mormons. And um, I'll, I'll give a, a little anecdote to warm this up. There was this person on Twitter who uh, had like an ex-Mormon account that was pretty prominent. And, you know, it, and 2020 was, you know, very anti-Hannah, which is fine because I, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, and eventually by, by 2021, when I had apologized for a lot of the things and I had turned a different corner and had been trying really hard to, to become a better person, uh, I became friends with this person and we've kept, we've kept in touch. We talk a lot. And when I think about how this person has been characterized as an anti-Mormon, but then I think about how I know this person and how I know that this person is supportive of their, their currently active Latter-day Saint family. This person does critique the church, but also says things that are positive about the church. I just see a lot more complexity and I don't, I don't see anti-Mormonism. Um, and I'm not saying that there is no such thing as an anti-Mormon, but what I am saying is that is way less than what happens, right? There's anti-everything. Um, I think that you could, there, there are people that are very anti-Catholic too, or anti-Semitic. So, but, but what I'm saying is that when you have people like Lindsay and Dustin, okay, I, pro, in 2020, I was definitely, uh, I would say, uh, hesitant would be the, the kindest way to characterize how I felt. I, I didn't know what to do about your polygamy. I didn't know how I felt about Lindsay. And I had no clue who Dustin Lance Black was until Under the Banner of Heaven, regrettably. But the thing is, over the last year or so, as I've listened to Dustin and, and Lindsay talk about their experiences, I found out that Dustin had an abusive situation growing up. I found out that his parents were divorced, that he had a really hard childhood, and that that made him uh, have a lot of a lot of anger and sadness towards the church, understandably. Um, and for Lindsay, Lindsay has also experienced a lot of cruelty. So when I hear this, this accusation that I'm allying myself with anti-Mormons, which I do hear all the time nowadays, I, I just, I, I would encourage people to pause. I would encourage people to pause, to calm down a little bit and to get to know real people and to stop seeing people as caricatures to stop seeing people as um as anti this or pro this and just realize that we're all very complex and that complexity when extended to people can be miraculous and i know that for me personally too when people uh extended complexity to me and they thought you know maybe she isn't just like this firebrand conservative maybe there is a lot more to her that's what helped me to soften a lot was when people 
realized that I wasn't just one thing. And I've tried to in turn do that to ex-Mormons or post-Mormons, whatever term is preferred. I know that some prefer different terms. Um, and especially with Lindsay and Dustin, I have just seen so much cruelty that I don't think is Christian. Um, so I guess to, to summarize my response to Kimberly, I would say just open your heart and try, try to get to know people before you call them anti-Mormon, before you, you get incredibly mad at them. I, I definitely uh, had the problem of just judging people immediately. And I don't want to do that. And I don't think we should do that. So Rebecca, I want you to chime in here, but before I do that, I want to just address uh, uh, Kimberly Watson-Smith and also Hannah, um, Hannah Stoddard uh, of the Joseph Smith, they're affiliated with the Joseph Smith Foundation. And, uh, you know, Kimberly, you came on my program to talk about the Who Shot uh, Joseph Smith movie. Um, we got a lot of positive response out of that. Um, I'm sorry I missed you at the Mormon History Association. I would have liked to have gotten a picture with you. Um, but I, I, I do respect you, and I, I want to just let you all know that I've invited Hannah uh, Stoddard to come on the program to talk about anything she wants to talk about. And uh, Kimberly, of course, all my previous guests have an open invitation to come back on the program. So you're welcome to come on. All the voices of the restoration are going to be heard on Mormon Book Reviews. Rebecca. That's a big undertaking, Steve. <laughs> Only you can do it. Well, I would say um, to add to Hannah's comment that there are two parts to the phrase post-Mormon, which is what I call myself. And one of those parts is Mormon. I'm still a Mormon. I was raised a Mormon. Um, several of my children are still active LDS. Um, my friends are LDS. My extended family is LDS culturally i'm ld there's no way around it i am a mormon and i just consider myself a post-mormon and it's probably hard to understand <laughs> almost every time you open your mouth it seems uh in mormon family or friends sometimes things that you say are labeled as anti-mormon um an example my husband was visiting a national park with uh, extended family who are active Mormon. And we looked out over this beautiful vista and he pointed to the placard explaining it, saying that it was several million years old and giving some ge geological information. And when he said that, his sister said, well, that's anti-Mormon. It's only six, you know, 6,000 years. All he was doing was reading information about geology. And when that came out of his mouth, he was told he was anti-Mormon, right? Uh, just a few weeks ago, President Nelson had a big uh, meeting at the conference center, and two of my active LDS children were going. And as I said goodbye, I said, "Are you guys? Are you excited? Are you are you going to President Nelson's thing?" And they said, "Stop it, Mom. We don't need your anti-Mormon comment." I was excited that they were going. That means something to them. That's important to them to go see President Nelson. So sometimes post-Mormons, we're not trying to be anti-Mormon, we're just trying to communicate. And I think that's what you were trying to say, Hannah, is appreciate the complexity, open your heart, we're human beings, you know, let's just all listen to each other. Amen to that. Love it. Love it. So I think, um, I think we should probably talk about the episode and the series. So, you know, Hannah, what I'm interested in actually is you had mentioned that you were given a preview copies of the series a couple months before. Were you given the complete series or just the first few, few episodes? How did that work? Uh, so originally it was the first five episodes and then I also was given the first two episodes a few weeks before they aired, which I will say um, watching, I, I, haven't, I haven't had a chance to express this. 
watching the episodes by myself before people were talking about them was honestly very difficult for me because watching the episodes was was an emotional experience um especially episode six right so episode six you have the dark night of the soul right that 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 moment of faith crisis and I don't really like to characterize my own faith transition as faith crisis um I'm fine if people like that term for me I I I like to look at my faith as evolving as uh continuous in um a journey and um for me it's 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 uh I, I prefer to describe it in what I consider more neutral terms but I've definitely had moments where I have felt a level of pain very similar to that and watching that depicted was very emotional for me um and watching the the whole thing unfold beforehand was very emotional for me and at the same time I think it was probably good for me to see them ahead of time because I also had time to to process them um and I wasn't just giving a a quick take I watched them multiple times and I, I thought very deeply about them because I do think there are real problems that the series brings up and I want to be able to engage with those problems in my community uh in a way that's healthy in a way that's productive and and not have uh like an immediate emotionally charged defensive response or anything like that if that makes sense Hmm. Hmm. so one of the things that of course in the final episode was first of all we we have we have the actual they they depict the murder of brenda um, and we also talk, we're going to touch on mountain metals as well because they kind of try to tie them together. Now, what was so interesting to me was, first of all, it was a very difficult scene. I remember I was watched, started watching it in the morning. And then once the Lafferty boys got into the house, I had to shut, shut it off and I had to take a break. I had to wait about half a day. So later that evening, I decided to finish it up. It was very difficult to watch. I'm glad it wasn't too graphic, but it was almost in some ways even more so because you know what happened and there's this apocryphal thing that happens uh, where she gets the final word and she gets to, she she she's she gets to put them in their place and rebuke them and and do it in a very firm way and now of course rebecca you revealed you'd never actually haven't seen the scene uh because it was just too difficult it. to watch you I just couldn't, couldn't do watch it. it and i understand that actually i get that you know and maybe that's a sign of a good show you know you're you're emotionally invested in the characters you don't want to see it happen you know what's coming, and so I I respect totally that decision not to watch it. Well, I went you, you, to the site of where it happened, so I mean I parked outside and looked at the building when we were reading the book, and so I kind of had a little moment and experience there. And so starting to watch the scene, I realized I was just getting a little too triggered, so I couldn't watch it. So. Yeah, and I understand that. And Hannah, so what did what did what were your thoughts about how they shot the scene and what Brenda had to say? Well, the scene was really hard for me to watch. Um, I, yeah, it it was hard for me to watch. On uh, watching it over again when I rewatched the episodes, I skipped the scene, uh, but I did watch it the first time all the way through. Um, like you said, I do think that because it wasn't depicted as graphically as it could have been depicted that that was almost more horrific to me um just the implications were really hard um it's hard for me to see violence on screen in general um because i think that makes it more real and remembering that this really did happen was very difficult for me to to remember too um in terms of brenda's speech though 
I thought what Brenda's speech did that was really important. Um, it gave her the last word, but it also, I think, gave her the chance to assert her faith in a way that I think is getting lost on so many people, right? Because one of the last things that she says is, you're going to be judged for doing this. What you're doing is wrong and I'm going to heaven. And that to me was a very powerful moment because I saw that, you know, it's not, it's not that all religion is bad. It's Brenda's faith to the end was the kind, thoughtful faith that caused her to reject so many evil things that the Lafferty brothers were doing that caused her to stand up to them. And when she died and, and, and gave that speech, the ripple effect that it had on Diana and Matilda within the series was also, I, I think, very powerful because it gave Diana and Matilda permission, in a sense, um, to stand up to those who abuse them. And, and the reason I say that it gave them permission is because one of the things that I have uh, felt, experienced, and heard from a lot of Mormon women across the Mormon spectrum is that it, it can be very difficult to, um, to, uh, to break outside of some molds, to um, defy some norms in, in some senses, because uh, a lot of women's soft power within Mormonism comes from having uh, like hyper orthodox uh, views and, and lifestyle, and I don't I don't think people realize that that soft power is oftentimes how women try to uh, liberate themselves. But of course, that doesn't actually have like a meaningful impact on them. Um, and I, I will also add that like I, I I fully support people that want to to live traditional gender roles um, as long as it's their choice. And I think that that's the important part, right? It has to be a choice. Um, so watching that happen and then seeing the ripple effects on Diana and Matilda, I talked to a lot of Mormon women who said that they, they had a Brenda-like figure in their lives that gave them permission to, to be who they wanted to be and that that made them happy and feel more authentic and more lifelike. And seeing that depicted on screen was really healing in a lot of ways. Um, and I really appreciated that depiction, um, even though, of course, it, it's the most terrible thing to happen at the same time. And, and sitting with that reality is, is very complex and hard. Rebecca, you want to add to that or have a question? No, I think I think you hit it right on the head. I think she was a light in the darkness in that situation. And unfortunately, often those lights are the ones that are extinguished, as I said before. But I love how you said a Brenda-like figure in your life, because having said that, I realized that I have very clear memories. And again, I was raised in the 80s as a woman in the church, very different than it is now. But I have very clear memories of young women leaders or mothers of friends who were just, I don't know, they just had different points of view. They just had a little bit of power a little bit of forward I remember one particular mom really talking to me about education you know just just subtle things like that where it makes a difference and and somebody who's younger like I was at the time I remember I remember one woman that got up and bore her testimony 
I think she was trying to talk about ERA. That's that's my era, you know. But she was she was very positive about women and power and the role of women. I of course remember my mother saying, "Well, she's kind of gone off the deep end." I do remember being told that, but that testimony still stuck with me. That wow, women are doing something. I was raised in a very orthodox way, extremely orthodox, kind of almost out of society. No TV, you know, homemade clothes, food storage, that kind of stuff. So I had a different perspective, but I do remember those women that perhaps were a little bit of light in this perceived darkness. So I love that you said that. I, I, I agree that Brenda was that, absolutely. So one of the things that was most fascinating and the decision that was made to portray Brigham Young in a particular way, uh, almost from the very beginning, as they're fleeing from Kirtland, he's the one that's making sure they got the guns. Um, he's the one that's advocating uh, violence or, or, you know, to Joseph Smith when Joseph maybe isn't thinking that way. He's the one that almost it's implied was kind of maybe perhaps with, and again, this is in the context of how they were doing the historical reenactments. It's almost implied, it's kind of implied that, Joseph, that, that Brigham Young was kind of behind the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. And then we go up to the period of Mountain Meadows Massacre, where it's also implied or kind of shown, actually it's not implied, it's basically pretty explicit that Brigham Young was um, behind the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Now there's, they made a particular choice to portray Brigham in this way. And uh, I just wanted to maybe get some feedback from you guys about what was the, what, what were your feelings about how Brigham and the historical uh, flashbacks were portrayed overall? So I want to start by saying that um, I, I really think we should open up this discussion by saying that advocating for violence is totally wrong. Um, it should be condemned. It's not something that we should support. And I, I do think, um, and I, I said this in my post on blood atonement too, um, that I made recently that in no way should we support it or imply that it's right. And I, I think that that is uh, the most important thing that I could say is that uh, there was a lot of violent rhetoric during the Reformation era. There was uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre. Both of those things, incredibly wrong. Um, so I want to start off by saying that. Um, in terms of depiction of, of Brigham Young, um, I'll first talk about uh, the um, Brigham Young martyrdom thing, and then I'll go to Mountain Meadows. Um, with the Brigham Young martyrdom, um, I, I actually disliked that, um, truthfully. And the, the reason I disliked it is very particular. So um, you mentioned that Kimberly Watson Smith talked about who killed Joseph Smith on your program. It's one of the few things that Kimberly and I agreed on, um, which I, I find ironic, is that uh, I did not like the movie Who Killed Joseph Smith. I heard that it was coming out because uh, my friend Christina Rossetti wrote an article about uh, Doctrine of Christ uh, being similar to QAnon in Religion Dispatches. So I read her article. She and I had talked about it in a while. I went and I actually went and physically saw the movie too on on the night of, of the premiere and um I was not gravely offended by under the banner of heaven I I I'm like I have things that I like about it things that I dislike about it I'm not like beholden though to to write a 2,000 word screed on why I, I dislike it or anything I I thought like it was generally a good show um even though there are definitely things that I dislike about it but when I watched who killed Joseph Smith I was honestly very offended. Um, that was my first reaction is because they have the martyrdom scene play out. They play, you know, the, the hymn over it. And I was, I found that, that, I found that deeply offensive. 
Um, and then I actually took to writing about who killed Joseph Smith. Um, and the reason I took to writing about it is because I do think that the group exhibits a lot of um, QAnon tendencies. Uh, they do decry globalism as something that's negative. Uh, many people who are in the group are very prominently anti-vax. And I know that they get very upset with me for saying that they're uh, QAnon types. Uh, I just think it's a, it's a descriptive, not a pejorative on my part. Um, although I will say that uh, part of my motivation writing about them is I, I am very deeply invested in the idea that we need to detach Latter-day Saints from the religious right because I, I think that uh, right-wing conspiratorial mindsets have entered into uh, Mormonism in a way that I think is very unhealthy. Um, I think that it, it often is immoral and I, I think that we should stand up to these influences and that's something that I've tried to do over the last year. Um, so, so having that, that martyrdom implication was honestly very difficult for me to watch because I, I, I don't think Dustin Lance Black, quite frankly, is very plugged into the Mormon online discourse, mostly because he has better things to do with his time. Uh, you know, he's an award-winning, uh, he's an award-winning director. I don't, I don't think he cares uh, incredibly much about these things or knows incredibly much about these things. But for me, um, I just saw the way that it was very quickly weaponized by people in the group which I, when I watched the pre-screening of it, I, I like internally groaned to myself and I was like, ah, oh, they're gonna take this and run with it. And I would have been fine because I, I, I do believe the reason it was included was Dan Lafferty believes that Brigham Young probably killed Joseph Smith. I would have been fine if they included it and then had like a, a counterbalance to that. Um, but I think for a lot of non-Latter-day Saints, it was very confusing. Um, and I do think it kind of gave some fodder to the idea that the martyrdom narrative was correct. Um, and now to transition a bit to Mountain Meadows. Um, I'm gonna preface this by saying that I am not really an expert on Mountain Meadows. Um, I, I can say that I think Mountain Meadows was incredibly wrong, um, but I also think that the historical narrative around it is very complex. And because I haven't physically viewed all of the documents, I really hesitate to make very definitive statements on that. Um, and I said that in the last episode too, where I, I just, I don't know a ton about it. Um, in terms of whether or not Brigham Young perpetuated the massacre, right? Like that's the, that's the million dollar question that people are asking. Um, I am I, aware of the Reformation rhetoric. And like I said, that that's completely wrong. And I, I wish that that didn't happen. Um, I also think that uh, because Brigham Young sent a letter on September 10th to Isaac Height saying, you know, let them pass through without interference, I, I kind of, it's hard for me to, to reconcile how, how come Brigham Young uh, sent that letter and then how could he have ordered it? I, I don't know uh, if there's a, an explanation there that I'm missing. Um, so I, I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't draw a straight line to it. And I, I'm more so, um, you know, I, with the evidence that I'm aware of, I, I'm hesitant to say that he did just because it doesn't seem like he did. If there ever came a document up that said that he did, I would very readily write about that. Um, but um, I, don't, I don't see it as, uh, as supported by the evidence that I'm aware of. And um, if someone, would like to explain to me why that that's wrong. That's totally fine. Um, in terms of the, the other parts of the depiction though, 
I appreciated that they showed the Paiute perspective mm. on it, um, especially because uh, when I was researching Mountain Meadows Map for a little bit, um, to just try to understand it better, and I, I recommend uh, Turley's book. I read Turley's book, and then I also read Juanita Brooks's book as sort of a, a way to get like the both sides. I don't like saying both sides, though. Um, I, I discovered that there have been a lot of indigenous people who have felt like within Mormon history and within American history more broadly, that native perspectives, indigenous perspectives are not included. And that is true. And that is something that I realized that I had a blind spot on during this, this whole Mountain Meadows episode, because I didn't realize that there was this robust Paiute tradition that told a completely different narrative than the one that I was aware of. And I appreciated the inclusion of that in the show. Um, and I will also say that um, of course, again, Mountain Meadows Massacre, incredibly wrong. I don't appreciate apologetics trying to defend it. Um, just like I don't really appreciate apologetics for blood atonement. I think you can just own up and say that it was wrong, right? And I, I will also say, if you're upset about me saying that, the church also says that. And I, I would, I, I've never been comfortable with either one of them. I've never been comfortable with blood atonement. I wrote about it in March, 2020 where I said, because I just learned about blood atonement, and I, I basically said, yeah, this seems very wrong, violence is bad, and also a limited atonement isn't one I'm familiar with, so I don't like that either. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't think we need to, I don't think we need to be uh, very uh, neutral on that. I think we can just say that it's wrong. Um, and I think we can point to church statements if you feel more comfortable doing that. I'm just comfortable saying that it's wrong. Um, but when we're talking about, um, I haven't lost track of thought, I'm sorry. Uh, when we're talking about these really complex topics, though, um, and, and how wrong they are, I, I also think there has to be some action that comes from, from it. And one of the things that I discovered when, when researching Mount Meadows, like I said, is that I don't know a lot of indigenous history. And I feel like I need to make a personal commitment to, to do better on that, to, to learn more of, of indigenous history, especially um, living in Utah, right? Learn, learn more about the tribes that are here, that were here too, and try to, to learn their history and learn how to advocate for them. So that's been something that's been uh, weighing heavily on my mind. And I actually did have a similar experience with that with the priesthood ban. Um, in 2020, when I wrote in November, I think it was in November or September, right? sorry. Um, I wrote about how I thought the priesthood ban was wrong. At that moment, I thought, I need to pay better attention to black history. And I need to not only pay attention to black history, but become an advocate and, and become anti-racist, right? That was a very pivotal turning point for me was I realized I'm unknowingly and, you know, um, insensitively contributing to these systems. So I, I would just say, not directly related to the question, but I, I do want to take the chance to say that, you know, the, the, the history of Latter-day Saints uh, with Indigenous people is very fraught. I think it is very worth learning about, and I also think it is very worth learning about Indigenous history broadly and using this as an opportunity to recognize your own blind spots and move forward. Just a real couple things, and I want Rebecca to weigh in here, and um, was, uh, first of all, Justin Griffin, uh, Griffin, who was the writer-director of Who Killed Joseph Smith, was a guest on my program. Um, as far as I know, he's going to be coming back on when the part two of the movie comes out. Um, uh, of course, uh, all, uh, Justin, you're welcome. Uh, Doctrine of Christ people, I've been in touch with you. Um, you know, this is, I'm not taking sides here. So, uh, but I do appreciate 
Hannah, you giving your perspective. Another resource I would recommend is uh, Darren Perry, um, who's uh, Native American, who uh, is uh, involved in building like a, a, a museum for the Bear River Massacre. Um, I would maybe refer people to watch his interview on Gospel Tangents. Um, he also gave a really great speech at the Mormon History Association. So those are two great resources for that. So Rebecca, what do you say? Wow, so much to talk about. No, I love Darren Perry. We um, got to hear him. We went out to a hot springs and sat in the springs and listened to him tell his story. And he is, he's building that interpretive center. I've been out there to the Bear River Massacre site, another powerful and very unfortunate episode in Mormon history <laughs> with indigenous people. So we're reading the book, actually. I have it back here in book club and we're gonna have him come talk to us, so. Yeah, pretty powerful. So, wow, which question would you like me to address, Steve? At the oh. beginning question, did Brigham Young <laughs> know? Well, so, when did he know? When did he know? <laughs> well, it's it's fascinating to hear what you have to say. And, and of course, if you have any questions for Hannah, please ask away. Yeah, I, I do have a couple more questions, but I'll just weigh in briefly. I, I think I weighed, on, weighed in more at length um, in our previous uh, discussion of this, but I kind of, uh, the way I look at it is that the climate existed in the era uh, with Brigham Young as the governor and the Indian agent and the theocratic leader, the climate existed where people in his organization um, felt they had to check with him on whether they should murder someone or not. <laughs> so that to me just kind of speaks volumes. That's kind of where I leave it at. Um, the, and, and also the, you're exactly right with the refer ref reformation going on right then. There was a lot of rhetoric from the pulpit. Um, they were trying to get people back in line. People were being told they needed to be rebaptized, right? They have to recommit, it's the reformation. And there was a lot of rhetoric. I know some people have said, well, nobody probably really thought he meant it. I think that they, when your prophet speaks, you do think that he means it. So the mindset of the people, I don't think we'll ever be able to recreate. I have a personal connection that I talk about all the time. My founding Mormon ancestor, the one that joined the church, um, you know, he was just a regular person back in Connecticut. He joined the church and 12 years later, he is a shooter and a clubber in the Mount Meadows massacre. So something happened there. Some forces are at play socially, culturally, religiously, um, that made him and the others around him into that person. So for, and this, this is very close. We're talking about my grandfather's grandfather was an 18 year old, uh, in the Mormon militia. And his father, the founding um, ancestor I just talked about, uh, was a member of the high council that did vote on and make the decision, you know, in that. I can't even imagine the pressures there, you know, and the fear and what was happening um, on both sides. It must just have been, I don't think we can imagine. But to see it the way it was portrayed and under the banner of heaven, um, I thought that was one of the best, most impactful emotional portrayals I had seen. And again, I believe it's like you discussed with Brenda's murder. It was representational. We filled in the rest in our mind with what we know. And it's one of the first times I've seen it depicted how it actually happened, where they said, come with us, you'll be safe. Men, you march in a line. Each man was assigned a militia member. They were going to march them to safety. And the women were, had gone ahead in wagons. And then on the signal, do your duty Mormons, you know, each one was executed right there. And then of course the women hearing that ran, it was pandemonium, you know, that's where my ancestor was involved in taking care of the women who were running. And uh, to see it portrayed that way, and it was brief, it was quick, you know, quick shots, but boy, it really showed everything I felt. And I haven't seen it portrayed like that. So 
it was pretty emotional for me to watch that, just having that connection with my ancestor. And when I would also like to add to the mix, Will Bagley's book, Blood of the Prophets. That's what we read in our book club. And we took a field trip down to the site on the anniversary of the day that it happened, which was September 11th in 1857. And we were there on the same day, I guess every year, descendants of the survivors meet there and have a big meeting. And so they were there, uh, we were there, just lots of big groups. And uh, one woman was standing there and, and we were looking around and she said to me, oh, are you, are you one of the descendants of the survivors? And I, well, I'm not an emotional person, ask anyone, absolutely lost it. I said, no, I am a descendant of one of the perpetrators. I mean, I just lost it. And she hugged me and she said, it's okay. It's all right. That's in the past and we just need to come together. So. I mean, Mountain Meadows is one of my my big moments. It's one of the first things I found out as still attending an active Latter-day Saint by doing research at the BYU Library. It's one of the first things I found out that wasn't quite right when I started understanding my ancestors' involvement and recognizing that my family knew nothing about it. And I remember Xeroxing pages from this book that I was reading, this old book where it mentioned my ancestor, taking it to a family reunion. They wouldn't hear anything about it. They didn't want to know, you know, but it's important to know. It, it really happened. It, it has an impact today and it is important, you know, to take responsibility. Um, you know, that moment I had with the, the survivors descendant, you know, that was just a moment where I felt like, okay. <laughs> and she said, you don't have to say sorry. And I know I don't have to say sorry. I didn't do it, but I still feel involved. Um, and when you talk about the indigenous involvement, um, it was interesting because some of the other survivors descendants that we met said, you know, we've had apologies from Mormons. Um, we've never had an apology from the Paiutes. And I thought that's very interesting because I don't think there is an apology. I feel the Paiutes were victims. I feel as the Indian agent <laughs> that Brigham Young was, I feel they were coerced. I feel they were pawns and scapegoats. That's just my personal opinion. So I thought that was interesting that the perspective from some of the survivors descendants was we also need an apology from them because I feel they were equally victims. So hmm. I'd like to add something if that's okay. Yeah, no, please. Um, so I, when you were talking, um, I do think, again, with like the Reformation period, um, I think that that's very difficult to grapple with, um, at least it is for me personally, where I, I just see a lot, like a, a fair amount of violent rhetoric that makes me very uncomfortable because I'm, I'm a total pacifist. I, I don't think violence is justified except in very rare instances such as protecting people from genocide or unprovoked attacks, for example. Um, but it's hard for me to hear, to hear violence and to, to think about the impact that that did happen, that, that that did have on the people too. And I don't want to appear to be downplaying that um, because I, I think that that's, I think that that's very wrong. And then for me too, hearing um, from the Cedar City Relief Society minutes, um, you know, there's that that line in there about how important it is to avenge the blood of the prophets. That makes me incredibly uncomfortable too, right? Because part, I'm not saying that this is a primary factor, um, but a factor in Mountain Meadows Massacre was this idea that the Francher Baker, Com Baker Company had uh, people in it that were part of the mob that killed Joseph Smith. And hearing the 
at least in part, religious motivations for uh, alongside other social motivations, right? There's a lot of different influences, social, political, religious, but the, hearing those motivations are very difficult for me because I, I don't think that religion should be used to justify violence. I, I don't think that that's what God wants us to do. Um, and, and I also want to add as a separate thought, um, when you were talking about um, the Paiute perspective too, um, of course you have uh, John DeLee on November 20th, uh, you know, around like a month um, and, a, and a week after the massacre, John DeLee goes to Brigham Young and he blames it on the Paiutes. And that has persisted in some circles. And I, I also think that that's very wrong. Um, and I, I, I think, again, we shouldn't, Mormons are the ones to blame. And I, I, I wasn't there. Um, my ancestors are, are not Mormon. Um, I still feel though, um, I, I feel an immense responsibility um, th that I need to think very carefully about the way that my history and my culture um, of my church impacts me and think very, very carefully about the little harm that I perpetuate. Um, and, and when I say little, I'm not saying that, that that means like the degree of what I've said or done is is, is small, but I'm, I'm saying that I'm not, I'm not, a, a person with a lot of influence. Um, within my circle though, I have made mistakes and I've also watched other people make mistakes and not said anything and not pulled them aside and, and, and graciously said, hey, you know, I know you, I know that you're a good person, but you really shouldn't be saying that or you really shouldn't have done that. And in moments like this, when I think about how um, easy it is for us to persist in making mistakes and, and doing things that are wrong, um, I think we, we really need to think carefully about the harm that we perpetuate, um, even if it's not violent in the same way of physical harm, because most of us, right, don't, don't do that, but we still do things that are, that are wrong. And I, I don't like engaging in, in the mentality of, um, Lord, it's all them. Um, I, I and I, I do like thinking, you know, when I learn about these terrible things in history, one of the things that I try to do is ask, Lord, is it I? And then in this instance, I, I found out, yeah, I, I don't know indigenous history as well as I should. And that's something that I can do better. So I also just think it's, it's important to think about how we can learn from history, how we can not make mistakes, how we can be better. You've been to the Mountain Meadows site before. I was, when we went down there, the signage, <laughs> kind of like you mentioned, you know, I stood there with people who were just tourists and they were saying, well, what happened here? Was it an Indian, a, you know, Native American attack? People don't know. The signage isn't exactly clear exactly what happened. It's a little nebulous and vague. So I think, like you said, being aware and then doing your part from there is is a beginning. I actually, I made these little rocks and I wrote on it, I'm so sorry, descendant of a shooter and clubber. I left them around at the different monuments. There are so many different things that are left there, you know, little tributes. And, and on the Under the Banner of Heaven Watch Group Facebook page, which has like, I don't know, 2000 people on it, 
somebody posted, they said, look, I was just at Mountain Meadows and look what I found. It was my rock, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. So I've been trying to do my part. And I love what you're saying about we can continue. We can, you know, apologize for that. But then we can continue just in our own lives to do what needs to be done. And maybe that ties into Brenda. She was a light. She stood up to violence. She said no. She tried to say no. You know, she tried to draw attention. And maybe that's where it kind of all ties in. And I actually have a question for Hannah Steve, if I could ask a question that kind of ties into this. I'm wondering, um, what do you think? So I was in uh, Utah, like I said, at the time uh, the the Lafferty murders happened and it was portrayed on the news. I never thought any different that these were not uh, mainstream Mormons. These were a sect. These were FLDS, something like that. How do you think the series did in portraying that, no, these actually were mainstream Mormons. <laughs> like Dan was a high counselor just a few miles from me. These were mainstream, you know, who went too far and then and then took it to extremes. Do you feel that people watching this um, series will understand that? I know most of my um, active Mormon relatives watching it still don't understand that. They actually believe it was some kind of a, a sect that they were involved in from the beginning. They're not seeing it. How do you feel the series did to get that point across? Or did they even try? Was it important? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, in terms of, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna first ref reference Shirley Draper's article that she published in Juvenile Instructor. Um, there she, she details, uh, you know, that um, Dan and Lafferty became part of Crossfield's School of the Prophets. So they were not FLDS. Um, and I do think it's important to to just make that clarification. And I know that you knew that, but I just want to make sure that there's no one. Right. No, it's good to say it over and over yeah. because a lot of people, yeah. a lot of my relatives right now are saying those are FLD. I mean, yeah. if I were FLDS, I'd be standing up right now and saying, that's not us. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Um, in terms of like the evolution of Dan and Ron, right? So, so my understanding is they're born into this uh, Latter-day Saint family that um, tends to, the, the, and I know, I know people like this. Um, I think we all know people like this who, um, tend to, to be a little bit more right-wing, um, you know, uh, in terms of like Latter-day Saints, of course, right? Demographically in, in America, right? So when we're going to speak about the United States of America, because that's what I know the stats for. Um, and I think that that's what's relevant here. Latter-day Saints tend to be pretty conservative. Um, Latter-day Saints were the, I think the second largest group that voted for Trump in 2016. And then in 2020, there was a very significant Trump contingent. Uh, grace, graciously, I was not one of them, um, even though I was, I was close because at that time I, I, I was entrenched in this idea like, oh, like you need to be conservative to be a Latter-day Saint. Um, and so, so you have that, that at play where Latter-day Saints, they have not always been conservative, by the way, in terms of religious leaning, um, but, that, but definitely by the 80s they were. Um, like 50s to 80s was this period of, of uh, like, you know, right-wing views um, that were, I don't know, I think extreme. Like, I, I don't think, I think civil rights are fantastic. We all need civil rights. Um, so I do think that there's this, uh, this effect that that has on people when you do have very right-wing views make it into Latter-day Saints. So I, I saw the Lafferty family um, into the depiction of the in the series, but also the book, right? Because I've read the book a few times, as being this family that was probably like more to the right than your average Latter Day Saint family, um, and but but still but still technically Latter Day Saint, 
because they believed that, you know, uh, President Kimball at the time right, had had the keys, um, which is a very distinction, a very important distinction. Um, and there are, frankly, uh, teachings from prophets and apostles that do support uh, this idea of uh, anti-government, anti-tax, right? You can find statements that support that. Um, and you can also find statements on the other side, but those typically don't get as much fodder, again, because this idea that Latter-day Saints are more conservative overall. So I saw their evolution as they were in this space, right, this um, very right-wing space, and it didn't take much for them to get pushed to the other side. Um, and I shouldn't say other side. It didn't take much for them to get pushed into Mormon fundamentalism proper. But like, again, like that was, that was uh, an evolution for them. And it was only, uh, I think they, they started being in Crossfield sack like two years before they committed the murder. Um, so in terms of the depiction, right? I don't think that they're typical Latter-day Saints um, of the eighties. I don't know typical Latter-day Saints of the eighties as well as someone who is, uh, you know, born then. I, I wasn't born until 15 years after uh, 1984. So it's a little bit hard for me to speak about that. Um, I don't think, uh, at least in my est estimation though, that Latter-day Saints were right-wing in that sense. Um, most Latter-day Saints that I know that are conservative tend to be like reluctant Trump voters who uh, tend to be, you know, of course still conservative, but they're like, he's too low brow for us, but we're gonna vote for him because we don't like the Democrats, right? That's my perception of Latter-day Saint conservatism overall. Um, though I don't like Latter-day Saint conservatism, but that's a different thing. Um, but, um, so once you, once you hit that point of, of being more right-wing, I do think that you end up having a lot in common with Mormon fundamentalists though. And the, the thing to remember about Mormon fundamentalists that I have seen, uh, downplayed or completely ignored, like I'll give an example. I saw this Facebook post that came up on my feed, not from anyone that I follow, but it had over a thousand likes. And then the author was like, uh, they were talking about the documentary, right? And they were saying like, oh, the FLDS, they're not us. They're also not an offshoot from us. And they quoted the series saying like, the FLDS are a far offshoot. And this person was like, no, they're not a far offshoot at all. The, the thing with Mormon fundamentalists um, is they believe in Joseph Smith and they believe in Brigham Young typically too. Some don't though, right? Like there's, there's different points at which these groups break off. But to say that they're not offshoots and that they have no connection to the church is, I think very disingenuous. Um, of course, groups can be breakoffs of breakoffs of breakoffs, and that does happen. Um, but Mormon fundamentalists do have a connection to the church typically because they did break off from the church. Um, so when we're talking about how the series depicts that aspect, I do think it uh, shows the closeness between Mormon fundamentalism and Latter-day Saint beliefs in the sense that there are shared prophets, but I also do think it shows the distance. Um, and I think that that's something that people are not talking about either, right? Because to me, Brenda's the Latter-day Saint that I identify with, right? If I'm picking a Latter-day Saint in the show that I think, okay, who, whose faith feels the most familiar to me? Um, I'm not anti-tax. I've never been anti-tax. Um, so I've never been like that type of Latter-day Saint. Uh, Jeb is a man and is a little bit too like I have the priesthood for for my taste um so that doesn't resonate with me but Brenda does right 
because Brenda is more thoughtful. Brenda goes to her uh, women friends and she's like, hey, you have, you have power. You can access God. So that felt familiar to me. Um, and I, 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 I kind of think though, if you watch the series, it's all about what your understanding of a Latter-day Saint is that, de that de depends on how you see the connections between Mormon fundamentalism and, and in Latter-day Saints. For me personally, uh, I acknowledge the shared prophets. I, um, but I, over the last two years, I, I don't really like polygamy. Um, I won't really defend polygamy. Um, I, I'm agnostic on like why it happened. I don't know enough to give a strong opinion on that um, and to, to, to talk about it in a theological context. Um, but because that's my perspective where I'm I just kind of like okay I don't really know um but it's something that I personally don't like um it's a little bit easier for me to say like okay I at least see some distance between myself and Mormon fundamentalists while also acknowledging that there are there's some confluence um and I do think the show tries to show that you don't need to to see yourself as like the Lafferty's you can see yourself as Brenda um, and I think a lot of the tension has come because people uh, are uncomfortable with with seeing themselves as Brenda. Um, I don't know. That's my that's my read on it. Um, that was a very long answer, but but, um, it was. but the, the, that question also was not a question that we were that we were asked last time. So I would like to point out that that was a fresh question. But I think fresh question. I was trying to think outside the box. Yeah. So no, yeah. I had this conversation uh, yesterday with a family member who said kind of what you said. Uh, the fundamentalists broke away. And I thought, well, the term, this is what I said to my family member, the term fundamental indicates that those were the founding core beliefs and doctrine, right? Fundamental sure. means that the, that's the origin. And I tried to lead her to sort of think, you know, maybe we broke off, ooh, radical idea. So oh, wait, but, but we got to get into the fundamentalist modern, not to cut you off. We got to get into yeah, the no, no, no. I know. And that's a whole big yeah. other issue. Yeah. No, I know. But I just kind of think the yeah. word fundamental indicates came before, sure. you know, and there it is. And yeah. I think there are lots of instances, even in fairly modern history, like the Lafferty, church history, like the Lafferty's, where people do delve into core doctrines and arrive at a conclusion different than what the mainstream church is doing. For one example, I would say I have a family member who served his mission in Paris in the 1950s maybe you know where i'm going going with this one yeah. so yeah exactly uh, the missionaries got together they studied deep doctrine they went deeper and deeper and basically you know decided that they needed to be polygamous and got a lot of people involved they had to shut the mission down you know and yeah. So, and I have a, a brother-in-law who more recently delved into deep doctrine and became anti-tax, anti-government. There's something there for everyone if you're looking for it. So that's why this, this whole series just brings up so many things, exactly what you said. It's very interesting. No. I want I to make a quick comment, if that's okay. Sorry. No, please do, please do. Yeah. So the, the, I, I always find core doctrines a really uh, interesting and confusing phrase. Um, Primarily because what is core doctrine to me often isn't core doctrine to someone else. So I'll just lay my cards down. When I say core doctrine nowadays in 2022, um, in the year of our Lord 2022, um, I mean, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that President Nelson receives prophecies. Um, I also believe everyone can receive prophecies, though. I do think that President Nelson, though, leads the church and that he holds the priesthood keys. 
Um, I believe the Book of Mormon is inspired and true. And uh, I believe that there are true principles that I can learn from it. Um, but I also am very much not a scriptural inheritist. So I think things in scripture can be wrong. Um, so my, my basket, right? My like doctrines basket, I would say is pretty small. Um, I don't, I don't put a ton of stuff in there. I used to put a ton of stuff in there. I think a lot of Latter-day Saints put a ton of stuff in their, their doctrines basket. Um, so the phrase for doctrines is also, is very interesting to me, right? Because you do have church leaders saying like, this is a doctrine, um, and it will be this way forever. And then some, in some cases it hasn't been that way forever. And then in other cases, uh, it's still considered a, like a core doctrine. Um, for me, the, the term doctrine though, is, is just a very tricky term. Uh, because different people have used it at different times to mean different things. And the church doesn't really have like a catechism. Um, and all of this is to say though, right? I, I, I wanna make sure that I'm clear. A, a lot of post-Mormons have voiced to me that they believe the core doctrines list is a lot longer than the list I mentioned. And I will grant them that that is probably true in the eyes of a lot of church leaders. Um, and I don't think it's true in the eyes of all church leaders, to be clear, because I, I think Joseph Smith, right, was basically like, hey, believe in Jesus Christ, everything else is an appendage, right? So that's where I derive a lot of my inspiration from. Um, but I, I do think uh, a lot of the, the core doctrines basket depends on when what time you grew, grew up, uh, your local leaders, and I don't want to to appear like like I'm gaslighting any platform just because I think that a, a lot of the time that does happen. So I, I definitely think that like, yes, there is a core doctrines that is longer than my list. Um, but I, but I just want to add that I, I just I just find that such a curious phrase because I know a lot of Mormon fundamentalists because um, I talk to a lot of Mormon fundamentalists um, and it's honestly hard for me because uh, there are several reasons why I would never be a Mormon fundamentalist. Um, but a lot of them will tell me like, oh, you know, you don't really believe the true gospel. We believe the true gospel. And, and for me, like there, there are things that are non-starter. Like, so polygamy is a non-starter, priesthood man is a non-starter. Um, consecration is not necessarily a non-starter, but the way that it's in, in conjunction to polygamy is a non-starter. Um, so I, I have all these things that I think, okay, I don't think that these are core doctrines, you do, and you can justify that, but I can also justify my position. Um, so, so I don't know why I'm, I'm rambling about this. I just think it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult conversation to have just because there's a lot there and then like the rise of, of fundamentalists and I, I will credit Christina Rossetti for pointing this out to me. Um, the rise of Mormon fundamentalism, right? Often is in conjunction with modernist ideas, right? So like the rise of Mormon fundamentalism happened um, and Ben Spackman also has pointed this out, has ha happened simultaneously with uh, evangelical Christians um, and their debate on evolution, right? So the church's position on evolution uh, you know they're they're neutral which thank god because i believe in evolution um but th that position was also fomented at the same time that this, this other debate was going on so so i i do think we have to recognize how complex the baskets can be um and i i definitely assert my own basket and think this is great but i understand that there's a lot of people that think wow that basket is tiny you need to put more eggs in it <laughs> you're, you're safer with a tiny basket, I think. And I, I would say maybe 
not to use the word doctrine, but to say beliefs and practices. I mean, I can yeah. defend those. Yeah. I had beliefs and practices as a Mormon in the 80s, right? They yeah. were absolute beliefs. They were absolute practices that my parents taught me, and they treated them as they were doctrines. Now, my parents in their 80s still have many of those beliefs and practices and don't quite understand that, you know, the mainstream church has moved away from them. So who am I to say, right? So it is that's a that's a hard problem though. Yeah, right? it's a like, hard problem. You know, they have they've been elderly, haven't attended church for a while. And you know, I, I keep thinking, gosh, if they walked into a regular sacrament meeting and heard just some of the normal things said, they would probably be stunned. You know, I was raised very much with polygamy. We had a picture of my polygamous ancestors in prison outfits on, you know, prominently displayed in our house. When my parents first met my husband to be, uh, you know, here's my fiance. They said, oh, congratulations, Rebecca, on your first marriage and congratulations to your husband on his first of many marriages. That is what they said, because in the next life, I'm first wife, but there will be many more. I mean, I have a very, I probably need therapy. I have a very interesting upbringing. Yeah. So my basket's a hot mess. But well, and you know, this is the thing, Rebecca. You talk about Sorry for the facial reaction. Yeah, I just... well, it was hard. You should have seen my, my fiance's reaction. He's like, what am what? I marrying into? And then he kind of got excited. I had to slap him upside the head. No, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> that 80s, it was very different. Yeah, so that's yeah. really fascinating because you talked about like one of the things we talked about early on in this in our in, in the after show was you, when you grew up, you were there were a couple of things you had to be prepared for. At any moment, we could call be, be called back to yeah. go to Jackson County, Absolutely. Missouri, right? And that at any moment, polygamy could be reinstated. And these were things that were taught to you. It's a real thing. Yeah, as a young woman, we yeah. knew that that was a possibility. Well, Absolutely. I've 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 struggled with like the idea of like polygamy could come back or like there could be polygamy in the afterlife and I I think that that's a very real concern of a lot of Mormon women um and for me I I've said this before whoever I marry I'm just gonna I'm just gonna have them like say I will not take any other wives and leave it at that (laughs) that's great yeah yeah. That's great. Well, you know, I think uh, all the voices of the restoration are going to be holding, heard on this channel. And Hannah, do, do you feel that your voice was heard today? I think so. Very good. I was very talkative. I was more talkative than I was last time. That's fine. Hey, you know, every episode has it's, it's not 9 a.m. It's a little yeah. later in the day, so we're a little more awake. Oh, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. So speaking of which, folks, uh, so it's, it's it's afternoon time here in Florida, and you probably can't hear it, but there's rumbling of Florida afternoon thunderstorms on their way. Mm. And so before they we, we get overtaken, and it, because I'm in a 50-year-old mobile home that has very thin insulation, so it could intrude on the, on the show. But I... Uh, I want to thank you both for so much for coming on. I want to remind people, I'm going to leave a link for Hannah's article uh, that she wrote about Brenda in the description. Um, was there, before I, before I let you guys go, Rebecca, Hannah, was there anything that, final words you'd like to impart to the audience? I just really enjoyed being your co-host on this. I mean, the series has had its ups and downs. It's been a roller coaster. It's brought out so many different thoughts and feelings and conversations and all the different guests that you've had on. It's just been incredible. So thank you, Steve, for inviting me to be your co-host. I've loved it. Oh, it's been awesome. And that's the thing too. So just so you know, folks, we are going to be doing an after show. Probably what we're going to do is maybe just do watch all the episodes on Netflix of the Keep Sweet with the LDS. And we're going to probably have some guests, maybe some former FLDS people on the program. So we're going to look for an after show in the next couple of weeks coming out too. So Hannah, any final words? I just want to thank you for doing this with me and thank you for redoing it with me and um, just apologize to the audience. You know, I, 
I, I, I'm grateful for you guys for watching. I hope that you learned something and I hope that, you know, this time, since I wasn't super snarky, um, <laughs> it's a better time. Um, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Well, I'm glad this channel is a safe space for everybody. And Hannah felt um, that she wanted to have that reshoot the episode and we're doing this to honor her and have her story told the way she wants to tell it. And I just want to remind my audience to don't forget to like and subscribe and hit the notification button for when a new episode comes out. Um, we are on all the major podcast formats. We're a little behind because we've had a, a little bit of a glitch, but hopefully in the next week or so, we'll start getting uh, the audio uploaded onto the uh, podcast format. Um, merch store, morningbookreviews.com. Those of you, uh, PayPal and Patreon, we appreciate your support. And oh, let's see that coffee mug. One, one last time there. there really nice mug. Like, I'm not kidding. I encourage everyone to get one. It's really nice. Yeah, just so, and, and you can drink coffee too. So that's the key thing. I get to drink coffee out of that mug too. So uh, either way, I want to thank everybody. Uh, you all have yourself a great day. Thanks again, Hannah, for coming back on. Rebecca, you've been a, the bot. You're the bomb. You're the goat, the greatest co-host of all time. Uh, in, in a previous life, you or in, in an alternative universe, you're probably doing the morning show for KSL somewhere. So <laughs> I just love you you're so my much. Co-host, I'll say it again. Absolutely. <laughs> we were the Regis and Kelly. <laughs> that dates me. That's very old. <laughs> That's cool. All right, folks. Thanks again for joining us. And we love you. And I do appreciate all the great feedback I've been getting from the audience about this program. I love the fact this after show has been expanding where other after shows haven't. Uh, it tells me that not only do they like what we're doing, uh, but they also just appreciate what we're doing and uh, having all these different voices come on the program and give different perspectives, which I think is really awesome. So you have yourself a great